Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So it seems that Hunter Biden is fully aware that Hunter Biden is in a lot of trouble. And that Hunter Biden is going to turn to everybody to try and get him off the hook. But there is no hook to be gotten off of. Hunter Biden has done to Hunter Biden what only Hunter Biden can do, which is so screw himself that there is nothing left but deal with the consequences. But Hunter Biden doesn't like consequences, doesn't like dealing with consequences. And when there is a consequence that is necessary, looks for others to deal with the consequences. That kind of sounds convoluted. But it's nothing compared to his new defense regarding his laptop, which may not be his, even though he wants to sue others and have others charged criminally for what's on his laptop, which may, again, might not be his. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. This is why we drink bourbon, people. This is why we do it. It is something else. It starts with the Biden lawyers, the Hunter Biden lawyers who are now getting tough. They don't like the fact that people are talking about what's on the laptop. The the New York Post story was, of course, 100% accurate, 100% truthful. And Twitter and social media shamefully discredited the story, wouldn't allow it to be shared. And so-called intelligence experts told you that it had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. No, it had all the hallmarks of progressive disinformation, which is to say they're the ones who put out the disinformation. It had all the hallmarks of being good reporting, which it was. It was indeed good reporting. And it was the leftists who decided that you couldn't report those things. What Hunter Biden's team is now saying, what they're now putting forward is the idea that discussion about the laptop is unacceptable. Specifically, of course, what's on the laptop, the the emails and, and what have you. They're sending letters out to members of the press, people like Tucker Carlson and others uh, threatening defamation suits for talking about what's on the laptop. All the while, they're saying that this is not an acknowledgement that the laptop actually belongs to Hunter. That's their claim. These letters that they're sending out uh, about threatening legal action do not confirm uh, the computer shop owners or others' versions of the so-called laptop. They address their conduct of seeking, manipulating, and disseminating what they allege to be Mr. Biden's personal data wherever they claim to have gotten it. That is one heck of a twist, people. We want to sue those people who are talking about the information off the laptop, but we're not going to admit that it's our laptop. I mean, we're four seconds away from that all depends on what your definition of the word is, is. And then Hunter Biden gets back up from disgraced FBI agent Andrew McCabe, who, by the way, has a gig at CNN and might make more money than I do. Disgraced FBI agent Andrew McCabe is like, well, Hunter Biden has a point here. Well, it could be a number of different crimes, Alice. And there's it's, of course, a crime to um, access protected electronic information uh, without authorization or to exceed the authorization that you do have. That's that's the part that might apply to the uh, computer repairman. Um, it is also a it can be a federal crime to uh, to steal electronic information and then profit from it. Use that information. It's essentially like uh, using stolen property. 
So there are a number of different potential crimes here. I think what this really is is an effort by Mr. Biden and his attorneys to recast his role in this whole saga as a victim of a crime rather than someone who, you know, this the material on this laptop points to some sort of alleged malfeasance on his part. Um, and quite frankly, I'm surprised it's taken them this long to get around to it. It's a it's a very calculated and I think effective strategy. It's- You're proud. He's proud of it. Oh, this is what they should do. You know, it's the laptop uh, shop owner, the computer shop owner. He's the real problem here. He's the real Tucker Carlson. He's the real problem here. That does not work in the court of public opinion, but you better believe every progressive that you know of will be touting this as you see what's going on here. You see how they're abusing poor Hunter Biden. He's not Chelsea Clinton as a teenager. He's 52. Grown man deals with the consequences of his actions. But as I said, as I started with, he never actually has to deal with the consequences of his actions, now does he? There's never a moment where Hunter Biden has had to deal with the consequences of his actions. His actions, though, bring his father into the conversation, and that's why it's now gotten so perilous. You go back to the Obama administration that had serious concerns about Hunter Biden, and now you know why. They knew that Hunter Biden was a problem, that Hunter Biden was shifty, and they didn't want too many things going Hunter Biden's way. Now, if, if you ask me whether or not uh, Joe Biden loves his son, we've heard some of the voice messages and stuff. Of course, Joe Biden loves his son. His son has a drug problem, and it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are. You, you, it's, your, it's your kid. It's your kid, and you always want the best. You're hoping for the best, and it rips you up inside. And I think on that subject, I, I, I'm, I'm a human being. I, I, I feel for Joe Biden. But Joe Biden also told us he never had any conversation with Hunter Biden about his overseas business dealings. And, of course, that's not true. That's 100% not true. That's a lie from Joe Biden. Of course he knew. And the data from the laptop, of course, shows that. Voice messages that we've heard show that. So it's, it's time for the Bidens to accept responsibility for their actions. And Andrew McCabe saying it's about time they got to this strategy that's just a knockout and that is it's important to note exactly how they feel about you me and we is hunter biden entitled to a defense of course hunter biden is entitled to a defense that's 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 not the conversation here it's the willingness of those people who have already been disgraced already shown to be untrustworthy pushed into these positions of we should listen to him because he was with the FBI and proud of the defense. There's nothing to be proud of here. Hunter Biden is a suspect guy, a shady guy involved with Ukraine, involved with China, has his father involved. We know this. And the issue here is, well, you looked at the laptop that he abandoned. That's a that's a stretch for the American public. That's a stretch for the American people in the court of public opinion. Could it work in a a court of law? I have absolutely no clue, actually. I don't know how that works because I don't know if the access to the information in the laptop was actually unauthorized. You abandon the thing. Doesn't that create for the shop owner a level of authorization? That's going to be a question. What's not of question is Hunter Biden's a shady guy and Joe Biden is clearly, clearly connected to it. We will keep our eyes on the story. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. 
So it's all eyes on Bloomington because it'll be tomorrow. IU Purdue. That is the game to watch. Tony Katz, good to be with you. And then, of course, it's the story of these Pacers. They're exciting. They're fun. Man, they've been losing a lot. A lot. Tony Katz, good to be with you. JMV joins us right now, 93.5 and 107.5. The fan, he is the voice of sports throughout the great state of Indiana. And let's start with this Pacers team, the loss to the Lakers by one uh, yesterday, 112 to 111, the loss to the Grizzlies, the loss to the Bucks, the loss to the Magic. It, it makes you think that that win against the Bulls was just a was just a fluke. Uh, at this stage, it's it's time to start asking what exactly is wrong with this team. Well, they're not that good, and they weren't that good, frankly, when they were five, four or five games over 500 before they started that slide. And when they started that slide, Tony, that was with the loss of Tyrese Halliburton. And you could see last night what Tyrese Halliburton, upon his return, mean, means to this team. Um, got out to a big lead, blew it in the fourth quarter. Halliburton didn't have a great fourth quarter whatsoever, but when you look at his game, the first-time All-Star had a really strong game in his return. Don't have a margin for error at all, um, and especially in closing out games. And if you look at most of this streak without Tyrese Halliburton, that has basically been impossible. Now, if you do look hardcore, Tony, at last night, to me it started with this. I thought that Rick Carlisle left the uh, the bench in too long in the fourth when the Pacers were up and then the Lakers seized the momentum. You can look at it that way. And they didn't get themselves to the free throw line. As you look at the fourth quarter stat sheet, the Lakers shot 16, the Pacers shot zero. And Rick Carlisle mentioned after the game that he's never seen that in the history of coaching in the NBA. And then it was kind of wondering why a guy that's been such a good closer so far this year, Tony, as a rookie for the Pacers, Benedict Matherin didn't see hardly any, if any at all, playing time in the fourth quarter. He's been so good in the fourth so far as a rookie. So some inexplicable things, and it's all a part of this team learning. But I would agree with you. A lot of people would suggest last night, well, it's entertaining, but it's a loss. It puts you in a better spot as far as the NBA draft is concerned. Bullcrap. I want to see some winning around here. I'm so used and sick and tired of watching losing. I want to see some winning. I thought last night stunk. It was entertaining, but at the end of the day, it was a loss, and it still stinks. It, a loss is a loss is a loss, and a win and a win is a win. But there's something there's something to be said by they they lost by one. It's not like they're getting blown out. There is a level of competitiveness. Isn't that something to build on? Yeah, well, I mean, it is. Then that's exactly what they're doing right now. They have the core of players, and then Halliburton was back for the first time in, what, two and a half, three weeks, whatever, um, last night, and looked really good for most of the game in that win. But you can see the core group that they have, whether it's Halliburton and Turner, as I mentioned, Benedict Matherin, uh, Andrew Nimhart, the guard, is also going to be a part of that talented core moving forward. But, Tony, they're going to have to add some pieces maybe they end up adding a piece if they find something they like on the open market before next week's trade deadline but this is a work in progress and as excited as we were when they were winning games and they were over 500 you kind of knew that at some point they weren't going to win those games and they have been in a rut and then especially tony in a rut when they were playing without halliburton who's their best player Talking to JMV from 93.5-1075, the fan, the voice of Indiana sports right there is JMV. 
This IU-Purdue game, I mean, IU makes it back into the top 25, then has the the loss to Maryland, as you discussed it, reverting back to their old ways, where uh, defense is like, wow, that's interesting, we should try that one day. Um, and Purdue is just ridiculous. This team is nuts, still number one, and doesn't look like uh, there's any holding them back. So when you take a look at this game in Bloomington, um, a, what kind of shot does IU have, and what? how do you see this matchup? Well, they got a shot because they're at Assembly Hall in Bloomington, and unlike when they're on the road, normally when they're on the road, you get one guy, at least in recent history, that shows up, and that's Tracy Action Davis. Um, but being at home, you probably would expect them to get some support. I mean, we've talked about this before. Trace, who was on my show yesterday here in Indy, just needs some support, and he has not received consistent offensive help. And we saw that the other night in Maryland. It was basically him and then nobody else. And he probably will get some of that support. Tamar Bates shoots it better at Assembly Hall. Seems like Trey Galloway plays better because you're going to get juiced up with that crowd at 4 o'clock in the afternoon at Assembly Hall. There's no doubt about that. So this game should be competitive because it's in Bloomington. Now, the problem that IU is going to have is Purdue is unanimously number one. And I think the biggest reason is they are so connected and they so execute at a high level, especially in a late game situations. Oftentimes, Tony, we don't see IU doing that better over that five game winning streak, but certainly maybe more times than not, that execution factor isn't there. Purdue has been so good at home and on the road in a late game, one possession winning execution, it is going to be tough for IU, even in that environment at home in Bloomington on Saturday afternoon. No question. So we take a look at that game, and we make the assumption that Purdue wins uh, th- that game. If you're IU and you're like, okay, how are we going to negotiate ourselves, maneuver ourselves into what I'll call postseason play, right? Uh, they yeah. they want to be there. They want their chance. So they don't want the invitation to the NIT. Exactly how on the bubble now are you seeing that IU team, if indeed as one would expect based on records and based on what we know about these teams, they lose at Assembly Hall to Purdue. They, they've got to be thinking about themselves in this way, and, and they can't want to think of themselves in this way. Well, Tony, I mean, right now, according to most of the bracketologies that are out there, they are firmly entrenched into the field in the NCAA tournament, but there's still a large-scale body of work to be done. But you talk Exactly about my helping, point. Yes, exactly. And, and, and helping yourself immensely against a unanimous number one in your building on Saturday, this is, this is kind of that ace in the hole right there. It is. I mean, this is the one that's going to stick out um, to the committee when you see it coming up and you're drawing up the brackets for the NCAA tournament, this is the one, this is the oh wow game right here. And that's why it is incredibly important for IU to get this. Now, I'm not going to suggest at all that they're gonna, but to me, when you look back on this, this is as big, even beyond the rivalry, Tony, this is big of a moment for IU moving forward with this Purdue team in town as we've seen in a while. And frankly, this rivalry between IU and Purdue has not been at this level, this high of scope as we have seen it 
in a long time. There is so much going down on Saturday and so much incredibly on the line for the not-so-distant future in terms of IU and building that NCAA tournament resume. This would be gold on that resume if they could get it Saturday. You're Purdue, and I know you have a, a strong relationship with Matt Painter, and, and, and you guys speak often, the coach uh, of the Purdue men's team. You, you realize the, the, the power of this team, the strength of this team. You're already at number one, but you're looking ahead. Does, do coaches play it like you often see, whether it be NBA or, or NFL? We know we're in the playoffs. Let's rest some starters. Let's rest some people. Let's not have anybody have a high ankle sprain or anything uh, like that. Is it possible that we will start seeing that from uh, Purdue uh, in, in the days or, or weeks leading up to uh, whatever championship uh, opportunities come their way? No, Tony, they're going to go hard at it. They'll go hard after it the entire time. And, and what Matt Painter has built up there is also having a high level of depth and especially in this era, Tony, of college basketball with NIL, with the transfer portal and how easy it is for players to maneuver around when you decide you're not getting enough clock, you're not getting enough playing time, so I'm just going to pick up and leave. It is amazing so far that Matt Painter has kept all of his guys happy with the time that they're getting. Because we're talking about guys Brandon Newman, Trey Kaufman-Wren, guys that are really good players, Tony, that don't get – a lot of playing time because the guys in front of them are so good, like Zach Eady in front of Trey Kaufman-Wren. So keeping that dynamic happily associated is incredibly difficult for this era of college coach. And so far, Matt Painter is doing an excellent job. Now, I'll tell you this, it will help. The success of the team will help, obviously, everybody in health they're liking or not liking and how they deal with that lack of time. It seems like with this group, it just motivates them to work harder. Matt Painter has certainly got it going. So yeah, there'll be no rest. They're going to go hardcore after it because honestly, I'll add this before I let you go here. Yeah. Quickly. Purdue fans aren't really looking at it as far as the season right now. Purdue fans love what's happening, but they look ahead to the NCAA tournament where Purdue has had its shortcomings and disappointments. That's when for Purdue fans, this basketball team will officially be on the clock. My thanks to JMV 93.5-1075, the fan, the official sports voice of Indiana. Um, um, yeah, that game's going to be good. That game, I don't, I don't even know the, the start time. I don't remember it off the top of my head. All, all I know is uh, I'm scheduled on Fox uh, Saturday night. So uh, even if you're watching uh, the game, you may have to be like, hey, Sorry, I know I know it's close or whatever it'll be. I don't I don't know if it'll be close or not. Guys, don't hate me in Bloomington. You know you got a tough road ahead with Purdue. All things are possible though. Oh, shove it in my face. By the way, IU wins this game. Purdue fans are gonna be like, yep, yep, exactly as we expected. And IU fans are gonna be absolutely out of their head until the next time IU loses and they're out of the top twenty-five. I Look, as I saw it, I was questioning the idea of bubble, and and JMV is like, no, 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 you ain't there yet. I think IU needs to be thinking that and how they get aggressive uh, in in this latter part part of the season to ensure that they're part of the national conversation, to ensure that they're part of that 64. You don't want to be playing in or nothing like that. You want in. You certainly make your case with with beating Purdue. It's just a, a tall mountain right there. Very, very big mountain. That's an 80 size mountain. 
right there. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. That's what you do. TonyCats.locals.com. This right here is Tony Katz today. And even as the job market reaches historic highs, inflation continues to come down. Inflation has now fallen for six straight months. Gas prices are down more than $1.50 a gallon since their peak. Food inflation is falling as well. And as inflation is coming down, take-home pay for workers is going up. Real wages are up. Wages for lower-income, middle-income workers have gone up even more. A couple, a couple of that with a 2.9% economic growth last quarter. And here's where we stand. The strongest job growth in history, the lowest unemployment rate in 54 years, manufacturing rebounding at a faster rate than in the last 40 years, inflation coming down, real, races, real wages going up, but moderately going up, not going through the roof, the economy growing at a solid clip, Put simply, I would argue the Biden economic plan is working. He's crowing. He is absolutely crowing, and it's not like he can't. I got to tell you, I saw the numbers today. I was confused, uh, the likes of which it's hard to understand. Payrolls up in terms of jobs, 517,000 jobs. The expectation was 187,000 jobs. You mean expectations were off by 330,000 jobs, the unemployment rate at 3.4%, although that number not as important as labor force participation rate. What in the world are we actually looking at here? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I caught him in his car because I looked at at these numbers and I'm still trying to make sense of the report. What the hell just happened here, sir? (laughs) <laughs> Tony, I can't Biden does a very good job at reading the script that's put in front of him and how he does it with the, I, I guess he does it with a straight face because he doesn't know what he's talking about um, first of all, this report is very good for Biden and it's very good for the headlines but this is bad slash good for the economy as a whole and you notice the market, Tony, as soon as this, uh, this report came out, the market tanked It did. It was the weirdest thing in the world. The market went down. It was up in the, in the, in the futures and boom, right into the negatives. Yeah, because the market knows the truth. The, market, the truth is this. The Federal Reserve Board, which we've been talking about forever, they have two mandates. We know about low inflation. And people don't realize also full employment. So that's part of Jerome Powell's job, full employment and low inflation. Well, what's happened is this report says, hey, 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 Jerome, employment's looking good. Keep fighting inflation. So the market said, oh, darn it, inflation. So he's going to keep increasing rates to get inflation under control. Now, all these good things that Biden's talking about, we could talk about that if you want, but it's just he created such a bad situation. It's not as bad as it was. So he's bragging about the improvement. Tony, it's still bad. We're still 5 million jobs short of where we're supposed to be. 
Now let's take a step back because you said two things and let's go through them. You see the amount of jobs and that shows rapid growth and that says to the market that Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is going to do more to curb inflation, which means further increases in the interest rate. But the other side of it is you see wage growth slowing and that's a good thing for employers and you might see uh, more employment. It's easier to hire people. This is better. These are... It's weird to see these two things in polar opposite, isn't it? Or is or is that a standard? No, that's that's normal, Tony. That's normal, and you explained it perfectly. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. The wages are dropping, and I mean, he says they're going up, and, but he said, notice how he did said not through the roof. Okay, so he did temper himself a little bit. So wages are starting to slow in their growth, and so it's easier to hire people. The labor market's getting tighter. You can. It's a little bit easier to hire people. And so the market's saying, oh, uh-oh, uh-oh, recession coming. People are looking for jobs. And so, you know, it's a double-headed coin, Tony. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And just that thing, the market reacted to this by saying people are getting more jobs. This is way bigger than we anticipated. They're expecting something bad uh, to happen more jobs is is an indicator of bad things coming that's weird to people yeah, it is tony because if we were in a booming economy and you had more jobs that's a good sign but we're in a stagnant we just came out of a small recession economy that's bad that means okay people are more desperate they're going out and getting jobs now that's a good thing for them but it's easier to hire Tony, think of it as the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, you know, you have 30% unemployment. It's easy to hire people, isn't it? When there's 30% unemployment, well, guess what, Tony? It just became easier to hire people. So that's an indicator of a possible recession on the horizon. Now let's take a look at that as we talk about the hiring. We see the unemployment rate at 3.4%, but we take a look at... At that, what I ref- what I'm talking about, not that what I refer to, what it is, the labor force participation rate. It's 62.4 percent and 60.2 percent, which is the employment population ratio. That's unchanged. Yeah. What do those numbers tell you? Yeah, t- uh, Tony, it tells me people are not coming back into the workforce fast enough. They're coming in a little bit because think about it. It's a it's a numerator denominator. Go back to middle school math. Okay. More people are employed, a lot more than we thought, but also there's more people entering the workforce. So that, those are two good things. But, Tony, they're not coming back fast enough. We still have a 5 million labor shortage. And this is what I get mad at when I hear Biden talking about the greatness in the labor market. He needs to recover 5 million jobs, then he can start bragging. There's 5 million jobs that are not there that disappeared during the pandemic and they've not come back. And we all know that the, the businesses still need workers. Which gets more confusing because you just saw 330,000 more jobs than expected enter the workforce. Is it the wrong kind of jobs? Well, there is a dislocation, Tony. That's a very good point. There is a dislocation. We saw a number of service workers expanding. You said this the other day, Tony. You go to the restaurant, you can't get a table. You go to the airport, it's crowded. The hotels are starting to be booked. There is pent-up demand. We're still feeling the effects of this craziness from the pandemic. So you are correct. There is a mismatch in labor. We still have a shortage in engineers, analytics, accounting. Oh, my gosh, accountants. You can't get enough accountants. You want job security in your life, people? Go get a CPA. 
Now, let me uh, share with you something else Joe Biden said, the president, about the state of the economy. There's uh, some good news. Before I head to Philadelphia, I wanted to say a few words about what I think is strikingly good news that we just received. Next week, I'll be reporting on the State of the Union. But today, today I'm happy to report that the State of the Union and the state of our economy is strong. Is that what this report tells you, Dr. Will, that the state of our economy is strong? No, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say no quickly because that's absolutely false. This report says that we're trying, we're getting a looser labor market. That's good, a looser labor market. But the reason for it is because the recession indicators are higher. Tony, the market went down. Interest rates went up exactly when this was announced. So apparently everyone in the world who trades stocks thinks it's not a good indicator. And Tony, this is what frustrates me. It really does. Politics versus reality. The president's running for re-election. He's going to try to take victory laps. He's going to tell, try to tell you the sky is not blue. Don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your ears. It, it's, it's just spin, and it frustrates me because we need to deal with our problems in reality. He doesn't want to give us reality. Well, along with that, this was Maria Bartiromo, who's I think has got a real brain uh, over there at Fox Business. This is how she described it this morning. Yeah, it's uh, much better than expected, and uh, this certainly has sparked a sell-off in stocks, uh, as perhaps markets look at this as uh, less reason uh, for the Federal Reserve to be cutting interest rates second half of the year, which most people don't believe anyway. But Charles, give us your assessment of this report. Unemployment rate lowest since 1969. Yeah, you know... The initial knee-jerk reaction, though, we were a lot lower, so, uh, and I heard Cheryl mention something about people returning from a strike. What what stands out to me, and the one of the things I'm always uh, uh, pressing on, is participation looks a lot better, participation rate, that's uh, very, very important. You know, again, the the leisure jobs, we knew were going to be up there, we knew were going to be pretty high. The retail jobs, uh, I'm kind of concerned, I'm still concerned about the transition to maybe higher-paying jobs for people with low skills. when this is this is Charles Payne, this is Maria Bartiromo, people I have on the show, people I like, they don't have the doom and gloom feel uh, as they're reporting on this today that you do. So I'm going to now turn this back to you. Uh, no. is, is, are you not no, seeing I, this right? I disagree. They said exactly the same thing I just said. They said exactly the same thing. Maria started off her comments, and if you play just play just the clip she played of her, she said. We now have less likelihood of a rate cut in the second half of the year. That's right. She said it differently. I said we will continue to have rate increases. She said we're less likely to have a rate cut. No, she said the exact same thing, Tony. So now we, so you see that as the same. I, I kind of took it as they were trying to paint a rosier picture of, of, of the thing. Now, uh, it could be that I, I've got this small segment. If I listen to it in full, I, w- I would get more of, of your conversations in here. But one of the things that you're pointing out, if I listen to you properly, is that the recession indicator is still there. That, that this report, while it shows a tremendous amount of job growth, while it shows uh, you discuss uh, the, the wages going up, even though they're going up slower, making it easier to hire, that the possibility of 
everything being into the recession, having the negative GDP growth for two quarters, et cetera, is real and, and it's connected, that, that this is all uh, there and that there's, there's no need to celebrate because there's nothing yet to celebrate. What numbers are you looking for in order to say, hey, we finally have something to celebrate? Tony, I, I think that that's a tough question to answer. What do we want to see? Well, I'll tell you what. I want to see I mean, the stock market up. Uh, allow, allow me really quick. Allow up. me really quick. Hold on. Just to give you an, an interrupt, to say it this way. We put on 330,000 more jobs than we thought we would, and that's not a reason to celebrate. Now, that's confusing to people. So what well, is a reason? At the beginning, I said this report is good and bad, and I stand by that. Those additional jobs are good, but they're not good for the right reason. Good for the right reason, Tony, would be that we have a huge need for jobs because the economy is growing rapidly. The economy is not growing rapidly. And we have an expansion of jobs because people are more in need of jobs. I, you know, I, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm confusing. That's a, that's a problem with being a professor. It can get confusing. There's three sides to every coin or four, not just two. But you got to go back to what Maria said. She said it right. She said, this is less likely now because of the job growth. It's less likely that we are going to see rate cuts next year. Tony, she said, we're going to have rate increases. That's what I said. We're going to have rate increases next year. We're going to continue this year. We're going to continue to have rate increases. Rates go up, prices go down. That's simple math. Rates go up, market prices go down. The market predicts the future. The market is down. I'll say it again. The market predicts the future and the market is down. So what to you is an indicator of that? That's good news. Okay, that's good news. When the market goes up, when Amazon starts hiring again, when Microsoft starts hiring again, when they increase their guidance on profits, Tony, all these companies decrease their guidance on profits. All these companies report lower profits. All these companies are laying people off. They're talking about the future, and they're telling us their future looks bad. I want them to tell me their future looks bright, and they're not saying that. Meta came out when, when Mark Zuckerberg was speaking about their earnings report this week. He was solemn. He was serious. He didn't talk about the metaverse. He focused in on the number of people that are buying ads is down, but this is our projection for the next year. I want to hear Wall Street. I want to hear... The people who are making the profits tell me they're making more profits. Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today in the car. And uh, keep, keep it in between the lines, sir, if you would, please. We'd all appreciate it. Dr. Matt Will, thank you. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. You know, all this talk about jobs and the, and the markets. There was this fascinating piece on Fox Business about regret. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. And it's about workers who regret quitting their jobs during COVID. The Great Resignation, as it was called. And they totally totally regret it and it really breaks down in 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 the idea of gen z and millennials 77 percent of millennials regret 
leaving their job, 89% of Gen Z. So it was a, a talk of, uh, they spoke to 1,179 people, 825 employees, 354 employers. And so they identified two reasons for their disappointment. Mental health and work-life balance. 43% said they were satisfied with the work-life balance in their job, while 54% said they had a positive level of mental health. So there are two things in there that we can agree and disagree with. Work-life balance, doesn't matter who you are, is a legitimate thing. It's just that generationally, Uh, you would see more of a value on the work to be able to set up a better life for your kids or your spouse, things like that. We can argue that that's true. And, And I would also argue that while it matters, there is not enough focus on the importance of being able to set up those futures. I don't think you should spend all your time working. I think that you have to recognize what the working brings you. But only over over a little over half, 54%, a positive level of their mental health. That has to do with weakness. I don't argue the importance of mental health. I argue that we maybe apply things to mental health that aren't. Oh, man, I can't believe I have to go to work. Yeah, now get up and go. Get up and go and recognize all the things that that working brings you. Instead of, man, I shouldn't have to work. Man, this should be easier. Man, they should pay me more. All this, all that. And then people uh, decide to apply that to their mental health. And that is definitely, to me, an indicator of a weakness of the self. Far different than actual mental illness, let's say. Depression. Do we call that mental illness? But let's just, let's say, let's call it then depression as opposed to mental illness. And you can follow along. Depression's real. I don't say no. But mental health can mean anything to a people, to, to, to a myriad of people. I see that as a problem. I see that as a real problem. The study is super interesting. Find it over there, TonyCats.Locals.com. I have it posted, TonyCats.Locals.com. Find everything there, and I will catch you guys uh, next time. This is Tony Katz today, Monday, everyone. Take care. <laughs>